HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Grant Thomas, Chief Service Officer at ARC Retail Group, who has successfully launched over 100 items across seven Walmart departments in 38 categories. With over five years of experience as a Walmart broker, Grant is an incredible resource for helping emerging brands prepare for Walmart and then stay there. Welcome, Grant. Thank you. I I appreciate it. I'm a huge fan and honored to be on the podcast. Ah, uh, yay. I mean, this is really exciting. I feel like there's just a lot of Walmart in the air. And it's it's funny because, you know, you look at the numbers and it's, I think, over 25% of grocery market share. Um, the next one is 7%. Uh, and then 5.6, 4. Point, I mean it's really mm-hmm. like it is a it is a it is a behemoth. Yep. Um and I mean traditionally at least emerging brands and small brands have been sort of advised to wait um for at least, you know, I don't know 10 15 even a little more sometimes until exit actually um million in sales to to go there. And yet now I feel like I did this LinkedIn poll and I'm starting to hear things and it feels like there's a shift in the air. Um, So I'm really excited to talk to someone who's on the inside of it, who understands, because I know there is a lot of prep work. Um, But I guess before we even start, like what, 
why do you think people are calling? I mean, Andrea from Snackshot literally said Walmart is like the kith of food. Like, <laughs> yeah. why, what what do you think is going on? Like, I'm just just from yeah, all yeah. different angles. Like, right. From, so okay. So from all different angles, this yeah. has been some time coming. Right. Where if you look at you know Walmart, they kind of had this manifest destiny approach where they're building so many stores. Right. Mm-hmm. And then and then in the early 2010s, right around 2014, when Doug McMillan became CEO. They uh, shifted a lot of different strategies. They invested heavily in their labor force, uh, mm-hmm. raising the wages, offering tuition assistance, investing in technology, doing all types of stuff from that front. They also um, started paying a lot of attention to in-store customer satisfaction scores, and they just became obsessed with them and uh, in, in improving them. They changed the lighting and changed the formats mm-hmm. and changed the – I mean, so many things. Um, so it's been about a decade into this strategy um, from that perspective, but then you also when you look at the the programs that they're doing, um, I think I think during during uh, COVID, um, they won a ton. Um, when you look at like Walmart's online grocery pickup program that they're doing from all of their stores, they won they won mom over during COVID, and I think that they started to tip the scale. That started to tip the scale in Walmart's direction, and they've been capitalizing mm-hmm. on that momentum. And now, if you look at like Walmart Plus. And, you know, all the different stuff that they're doing to kind of capture uh, customers inside of their ecosystem and all the just no one can touch it from a value perspective. They're offering just an incredible value. But it's also cool and fun that Walmart Radio on in the store and, you know, Walmart's, you know, they've improved their customer satisfaction score. They've improved their labor. They've improved their technology. They've launched all these innovative programs. I think it's all kind of coming together in a really unique way. And. And look, at the end of the day, Walmart's a uh, growth company. You know, we laugh every year that Walmart releases its earnings. I mean, Walmart's revenue grows year over year more than the com- <laughs> the combined revenue of you know, uh, you know, YouTube or t- yeah, yeah, t- TikTok, <laughs> Tesla, Netflix, right. all these all these companies combined, Walmart outgrows them. So, and groceries a huge part of that. You know, it makes up over fifty percent of their revenue. Mm-hmm. And, and so, I mean, they're playing for keeps, they're playing to win and they're doing a great job. And, um, I think it's just a lot of different things happening at once. Yeah. And I mean, it seems like they've really read the tea leaves, you know, it's like, we're, I understand it, you know, I guess this is my very sort of like superficial outsider. I don't know, but just sort of assessment, right. It's like in, in the pandemic, retailers really had to like figure out, am I reducing SKUs? Am I a value option? Am I, you know, or am I giving people joy and leaning into experience? And it's hard to do both, Mm -hmm. you know, because experience means innovation and it means like fun new brands. And it means, you know, all of that stuff that like really creates like, ah, this is, this is fun. And somehow Walmart seems to have been able to do both. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just because they're so big and they've got so much cash. Like maybe they just aren't, they seem somewhat immune to a lot of what's faltering in retailers. I mean, grocery stores are having a really hard time now. Even Costco's having a hard time now. Like, it, 
and and they're having a hard time with fulfillment and they're having a hard time bringing in innovation because the directives don't seem clear from the top down. Mm-hmm. So, you know, buyers are confused. Is my job to like rationalize or is my job to innovate? Because those two things tend to be in opposition to each other. So right. are they are they just aware that are they just like we can do both? We can be super value because we have the infrastructure. And we can bring in innovation and make it a fun experience for like Gen Zers who are literally taking pictures of themselves in line to buy things mm-hmm. at, at Walmart. It is both. You know, I mean, during COVID, they absolutely, they leveraged their scale to, yeah. um, to really do a lot of things during COVID uh, with suppliers, right? So they didn't have the cost increases. They didn't have the fulfillment issues. They had a little bit, like mm-hmm. like everyone, but they really leveraged their efficiencies and their scale and to put all this downward pressure on inflation. If you look at that, Walmart is, you know, save money, live better, right? So they wanted mm-hmm. to be able to offer all these premium products at a, you know, incredible value gap to rest of market. And they were able to, and they've been doing that and they do well during times of, you know, recession and things like that, this pandemic, um, you know, they definitely had these intentional strategies to leverage their volume and their scale with suppliers to get, you know, preference. But but yeah, they did not take their foot off the gas in terms of, you know, innovation and and launching new brands and adjusting with the market and evolving with the times and, you know, curating their assortments to just be, you know, best in class. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, they, they, um, you know, their mentality, again, it's a growth company, but even like on the, you know, there's a funny quote from Sam Walton. It's like, they were asking him about a recession and he was like, yeah, I've heard about the news. I'm just choosing not to participate in it. You know, (laughs) and and like they're, they're doing their thing. And when you're a fortune one company, you can. And, uh, and so, yeah, yeah. And so their, their goals are as lofty. They don't, they don't take their foot off the gas for really anything. And it, they just leveraged it. That kind of leads to what can be the problem, right? Mm-hmm. So they're so big. They're so powerful. They are the ultimate carrier ship, intrepid. And here I am with like a kayak, <laughs> yeah. right? Like yeah. they can't even forget about like a cigarette boat. Like I'm literally like a kayak. And so they can't even forget about like bringing me onto the ship. They're like, what is that speck down there? And I think, is it a, in the water or is that like a fish? Like that integration is really hard. It's scary for emerging brands. A lot of us, again, have been advised against it, although that seems to be shifting too. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there are 4,000 Walmarts, clearly they're not all meant to service, you know, consumers that are looking for more premium, you know, emerging brand type of, you know, products, or maybe I'm wrong about that. But what have you seen them do, I guess, to help, to, to make that kayak to Intrepid bridge more functional? Or do they, are they just like, well, hope it works for you. Like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at Walmart, you know, so there's 4,600 Walmarts in the U (laughs) S and, um, and when you look at Walmart has the best data 
Yeah. Uh, better better than anyone. I I don't even. I'm not even aware of another firm consulting firm. Maquette this that like. Right. I don't know anyone that has better data, better data scientists, better category teams than Walmart, right? And so they have data in each and every one of their stores has a community profile where they know um, mm-hmm. the demographic makeup of the area. Mm-hmm. Um, they know the average income of the area. They know what other retailers are in that area, what products those other retailers are selling and at what price. They have so many, they have so much data. Mm-hmm for each and every store and the community around it that, and then also within their own apps and within their own programs, they, they have a bunch of data on top of this as well as syndicated data and brand data, but each store has a community profile. And so they have clusters of stores that, you know, some that do better with the Hispanic population, some that do better for emerging brands, some that are mm-hmm. Hispanic emerging brands, you know, they, they, right. have, they have all these custom clusters of stores and, and uh, you know, they can have, because there's 4,600 stores and there's different formats, you know, they have 3,600 super centers, 800 neighborhood markets, 200 discount stores. That drives a wide degree of variability in like the mod mm-hmm. that each buyer is buying. And so, and, and organizing and curating the assortment on. And so there can be over, you know, 400 variations of just one modular, uh, one wow. category, right? And so- they marry this data up to it and they um, build um, mods and they have this data around the customer so they know which which stores do best for emerging brands and things like that. And so they know how to plug suppliers, um, small and right large. Places. Absolutely. Now, yeah. suppliers still have to be a steward of, you know, what they say yes to. Oh, we're going to get there. Yeah. Yeah. We are going to get there. But Walmart does a great job. And then another question I had is like, so a lot of times I'll sort of get a kick out of, you know, what I like doing, and this is like a little, I don't know if other founders do this as much, but little hint if you don't. Like I like looking before I even make a deck for a retailer, I look at their strategic plan. I look at their, you know, most of them are publicly traded. I look at any kind of notes I can get on what is the CEO said, what are the driving, you know, factors for their growth, all of that stuff. And I basically, I don't kind of, there's nothing that I'm like making up in the deck, but I definitely lean heavily on the things that I know that retailer is looking for um, when I'm presenting. And I think that's just good practice. But Mm -hmm. a lot of times the strategic plans or what the CEOs are saying at some of the larger retailers, it's almost like I want to tell the buyer, like, have you not heard, has the message not like gotten down the pipe to you? And what I hear back frequently with, you know, friends that are buyers or people that have like insight into the system is that while that might be the strategic plan of people sitting in a boardroom, the boots on the ground teams are not compensated for those KPIs. So while innovation and being first to market and, you know, fresh and all of these things might be things that they're leaning into sort of, you know, big picture, the, you know, the sort of the buyers and the category managers are being compensated on a completely different, you know, set of goals, margin Mm -hmm. primarily. So that leads to 
you know, why would they stick their neck out and bring something in if they know it might not be gangbusters year one and might take a little while? That is the nature of an emerging brand, right? So it sounds to me like, it sounds like there is something funneling through from top to buyer that is embracing emerging brands. And it's, you know, it's evidenced by all of these TikTok content creators launching at Walmart first, you know, Walmart doing sort of fun product mashups and innovation. And it seems like there is something going on there where not only is it the strategic plan, but it's also made its way to the boots on the ground. And I'm just wondering if you can speak to that. Absolutely. Um, You know, each department's DMM, department merchandising manager, the way it funnels down, you know, from Doug McMillan, the CEO, mm-hmm. on down to them, to down to their merchants, um, the alignment is is pretty phenomenal. Now, I'm super biased, and I just work yeah. with Walmart and Sam's, right? So um, I just know how they do it. But I can tell you, they're leaning into these programs because they're driving growth. They're leaning right. into emerging brands in a very data-backed way, and they're doing these collaborations with different, you know, influencers, people with following people that can drive incremental traffic into their stores because it drives sales. Like these programs, like you mentioned, leaning into fresh and stuff, that's because they're trying to win and it makes, it makes economical sense Mm -hmm. versus, you know, I think maybe some other retailers want to, um, have certain representation on their modular that may not be driving, you know, incrementality of the category, but just to check a box. Right. Um, Walmart's, doing it to grow the category incrementally. And right. so and so I think that the top-down objectives they've selected are just really wise. And mm-hmm. and I think and then and buyers are leaning into this stuff and launching, you know, emerging brands and doing it the right way, start, you know, responsibly, growing sustainably, but offering their customer these unique solves and and this incredible value to rest of market and they're doing it in a really um, you know, a, a really curated way and professional way that I think isn't being done with other retailers. And I think that's the key. Yeah. I mean, you're a fan. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I always say like, it's, you know, I, I don't know, I get a little wonky about it just because like, I am a food policy person first and foremost, I think before mm-hmm. I was a founder and, The thing is, innovation is just good. It's good business. It's good for consumers. It's good for retailers. Again, like you're saying, it has to be done the right way. It has to be done responsibly. There is a sustainability aspect to it where like it takes time and it needs to to be managed responsibly. But at the end of the day, I don't think any anyone expects retailers to do brands a favor. Like mm-hmm. put me on shelf because it's like nice of you. Like mm-hmm. the reality is that it all does come down to sales. And if we can offer something that they haven't seen before or better than what they have seen before, something innovative, something that makes the experience of shopping fun and exciting, you know, and I think there is sort of this, it, it's interesting because as hard as this business is in a lot of ways, with everything from like supply chain to consumers just being completely overwhelmed by choice and, you know, retailers, you know, facing labor issues and all of that. 
what is the fun part right now is that food brands are, you know, still sort of fun. There's mm-hmm. still, you know, yep. there's still ways for people to like have, you know, instead of buying a, a handbag, if I buy this soft drink, it's still this signal that I know what's going on, you know, mm-hmm. and yep. it makes me feel a little like cooler than I felt yesterday. And there is still that it still exists as much as private label wishes that they could, they could, you know, I think capitalize on that more brands are still driving the, you know, the fun factor. It's like you said, it's, it's innovation is good business. And it's just, it's just so true. And look, food is fun. You know, it's just, it's so much fun. And you look at, Again, Walmart's, you know, over 50% of their revenue is driven by grocery. Mm-hmm. I yep. mean, that's where it's, if, if you, you know, they're just so focused on it. And it's such, it's the right thing to, if you win a grocery, you can win everywhere else. And that's where they're, and that's why I feel the same with brands. If you can win at Walmart, then you right. can win anywhere, you know. Well, that's a perfect segue into our break, because when we get back from the break, we're going to talk about how to win at Walmart. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheese-making traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheese-making culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old-world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheese-making craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. I'm back with Grant Thomas from Arc Retail talking about the big one, Walmart. Um, Okay, so we're going to start at the beginning of even just before thinking about supply chain and warehousing and pricing and all that. We're going to start about how do we even evaluate if we're even ready to think about it? (laughs) Like, what, what are you know, brands are starting to go earlier. There is no question about that. Um, I think it's just, you know, what should we be factoring into our decision-making before we even call you? I think, look, emerging brands probably need to evaluate if they have data-backed selling stories around how, you know, they or the qualities their brand or products have are driving category growth and how Walmart is missing out on that category growth. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think if, if you can objectively look at those things and there's an, a real story there, uh, again, touching on that topic we touched on earlier, you know, Walmart's a growth company. I mean, their, their merchants have to grow their categories 
day over day, week over week, quarter over quarter, year over year. I mean, they're publicly traded. They get incentivized to grow. They get bonuses based on growth. And if you have something that's driving category growth and and they're missing out on that growth, mm-hmm. I think that the, I think that that's a way to kind of first evaluate if you if you kind of have this product market fit with Walmart. Okay. And then what about infrastructure on your end? Like as a brand, do you need to be above a certain threshold of sales? Do you need to have a certain supply chain locked up? Do you need to have a certain team? You know, like what, you know? Yep. Yep. I've, so I've had experience launching some brands where look, there was three of us and this is a very large brand on the shelf today. And um, the, the prom, the promise that we all made to each other is that we're going to invest back in this business. And so we were adding on supply chain people and marketing people and all these things that we were kind of, you know, doing, um, we, we built our team out. Now there's over 12 people there. Um, and so I think that some brands can come in small if they're really thinking one, three, five years out. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, you know, from a supply chain infrastructure, I mean, you know, a lot of brands are, you know, use co-packers, you know, they have to manage relationship with the raw material suppliers They have to manage relationship with our co-packers. And it's, you know, how much leverage do you have? Right. Uh, Cause the last thing you want to do is get sideways. Cause you really, you really do get one shot at Walmart. Right. Um, and so I think that um, from a production and supply chain infrastructure perspective, it's definitely wise to come correct and do like a couple, like we use an Excel model that I've built where we can trial different, you know, here's what the mod fill looks like. Here's the units per store per week average. Here's what the weekly orders are going to look like. How do you feel about this? How do you feel about that? And then we structure a P&L. Um, this is, this mm-hmm. is, these are Walmart's terms. This is, you know, we take everything out of it and then we, we stress test our assumptions, we stress test our PL, we stress test all these things. And that's kind of how we evaluate the production supply chain infrastructure along with the PL. Okay, so I have a couple questions that I've heard from ops people. One okay. is sometimes they say that you kind of need your like if you have a warehouse, you might need a whole separate warehouse to fulfill Walmart. Is that where what is what is that? <laughs> no, no, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. So I think what that might be is that, um, and this is what I'm a big fan of, like any emerging brand, I would say this would be a great model for them is using a, um, a Walmart vendor pool, a consolidator, a 3PL that's mm-hmm. um, specific for Walmart. So they have their own, you know, like five or three digit number inside a Walmart. They're an official Walmart vendor, vendor pool. And so what you do is you ship your inventory to their warehouse mm-hmm. They store it on your behalf, and they're just an order fulfillment extension of your operation. So they pull all these Got different it. suppliers' orders together. And then in EDI, you set up the setting where when Walmart triggers an order to you, they see it immediately, and they, they receive all the uh, orders from their vendor pool at the same time. So they pick, pack, and ship mixed mm. pallet full truckloads to every DC every day. And, um, there's a right. handful, there's a handful of them. And that's the model I would say is like a lot of brands, like be a brand, be focused on building mm-hmm. your brand. You're not a supply chain company. And yep. this is how these companies butter their bread is shipping Walmart. This is all they do. And so let them, you know, embrace the specialization of that and let them focus on that. And these people have priority at the DCs. They, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're not dropping the trailer and hoping for the best there. They get priority at the DCs. They get checked in. It's just like you're riding with literally a hundred other suppliers 
in, in you're leveraging all those volumes to gain some efficiency and cost versus like LTL right. or small or small parcel or something like that. Right. And so that might be what they're talking of. And that's also what I would suggest too, in terms of, you know, outsource that because I know companies that dedicate that have, you know, 40 dock workers that are in charge of order fulfillment and Walmart gives them a run for their money, you know, yeah. because, because you have to ship on time, you have to ship in right. full. If it, That's if the it, other thing. That's the other big ops concern that I've heard is you get dinged if you're early, if you're late, mm-hmm. you, you kind of get dinged all the time. But I think what you're saying is this vendor pool there, you're not going to get dinged because it's, they're the fulfillment partner. Right. They, but you're still the vendor of record. You're getting paid directly. They're not a distributor, right. but they are the fulfillment partner, correct? But like the onus is still on you, right? Like if, if you don't stock them and they have a bad fill rate, the buyer is going to come to you. The punch manager is going to come to you. You have to own that. But I think at the, a lot of these suppliers, like if you look at like dot foods, they'll even eat the OTIF fine. They're saying, Hey, we're so good at this. If right. we mess up and it's on us, like we'll pay for the OTIF fine. By um, the way, orders on time in full is OTIF for those of you who don't recognize the acronym. Right. Um, sorry. Sorry. No, I, get, okay. uh, I mean, there's so, there are just so many freaking acronyms. I'm yeah. sure Walmart has its own acronyms. Right. That, right. That are only exclusive to Walmart. Yep. Um, yep. But I think that's because my guess is that, you know, if you're a little company and you're trying to like, land your quarter of a truck or whatever it is at a Walmart. Again, it's like the, the kayak trying to like pull up to the, to the intrepid. Mm-hmm. Like you're just going to, they're going to be like, um, what? Like looking, you know, I just picture them being like, uh, and then, you know, and then that, that can add up and really ding you for sure. Right. Right. And I think too, if you approach a buyer with this already thought out, like a lot of it, a lot of what I would do is, you know, in addition to that stress testing of the PL and the supply chain is, you know, there's only a handful of these vendor pool providers, right? Mm-hmm. You got KStack, uh, CH Robinson, you have RJW, you have DOT. That's really, you know, then you have a lot mm-hmm. of LTL suppliers, but you look at like vendor pools, those are like the main programs. Right. So we could, we, you know, what I would do is go and get quotes from all of them based on what we think our volumes and store counts and this is going to be. But ultimately that's so early stage that really it's all about customer service, you know? And so, um, you know, there's only a handful of them. So it's like you come to, if you come to Walmart and you're coming correct saying, Hey, I've already got a turn. I'm a turnkey supplier. You could add me and I can ship on time and info. I'll be riding with one of your trusted, you know, three PLs that delivers to your, to every DC every day. You know, it's just one of those things Mm -hmm. that a, a buyer won't have the headache of launching a new brand right. because you're already riding with all this other stuff that's already going in and you're already working with professionals that just do this one thing. And so I think that really does make a difference for an emerging brand approaching Walmart saying, Hey, we're already locked up with, you know, we're already using this right. provider and we're already going to be in this vendor pool. You know? you know, that makes a lot of sense. And then, I mean, I guess I'm, you know, I, I've heard of dot obviously a lot, but I mean, presumably if you sign up with dot to fulfill Walmart, they can also do other, I mean, they, they can do other retailers I'm imagining, but. Right. Right. And that's where, again, it's like the embracing the specialization, like my two favorite, you know, are dot and RJW, you know, and Mm -hmm. dot is for temperature control three PL because outside of that, you would be stuck having to use brands would be stuck having to use 
distributors like uh, McLean or Cormark, right? Mm-hmm. And they're delivering directly to the store. Right. And, and um, this model is just so much better because you're the vendor of record and you kind of, right. you can, re- you can replenish the higher velocities and it's just, it's a, it's a better model in general. And then RGW is on the temp controls or the non-temp controlled side of things. They're truly best in class as well. So it's like right. between those two, um, they it should have most brands margin, covered. I would imagine, but you know, it's a check, you know, it's a yeah. check. I feel like brands should write with a smile on their face when they realize this the thing is they don't know what they don't know. The type of, the type of work and headaches they are dodging. Right. They'll never know if they come correct, like in the beginning. Right. But to take it from someone who's learned these lessons that has the scar tissue, you know, it's yeah. better, it's better just to, yep. you know, r- write that Build check. Yeah. I, I would say it's never more than 20% of your cost of goods. And right. I, I'm saying that's super high. Right. right. And and I think that it could easily be half of that. But, you know, d- on different costing structures, different things like that, I would say it's never more than 20 percent of your cost of goods. And, you know, Walmart does not want to pick up your inventory. So you're going to be delivering it anyway. Mm-hmm. So, right. you know, it's one of those right. things where it's like, all right, if you're going to do it anyway, you might as well be best yep. in class at it. Right. Speaking of margin, um, let's talk a little bit about so it. So it's interesting because I've heard there's a lot of discuss. I mean, founders are just like, I don't know if your phone is ringing differently than it was a while ago, but there's a lot of just excitement going on and just Mm -hmm. chatter. But basically what, so Walmart in terms of, you know, the, the, the pro argument is, listen, I'm going into these natural accounts through these big natural distributors you know, yes, my price on shelf is higher. Maybe I'm getting a little, you know, more my selling price. But by the time you put in the off invoices and the MCBs and the promo calendar and the thing and the other thing and the whatnot, mm-hmm. I'm actually not making as much. And it's a constant headache. Whereas yep. the argument pro Walmart is okay. I'm giving them a lower price to begin with, but there are no, none of these other additional line items. It's a much cleaner, clearer, I know what I'm making there. Mm-hmm. I can solve for it more easily. We, there, we will get into like what we do have to spend on for marketing. Um, but, you know, they're, they're well known for paying easily and well, you know, like there's, there, so tell me a little bit about the, how we need to think about pricing ourselves. Let's say we, you know, we sell a unit. I, I'm going to make something up for, you know, $4 to a distributor and our price is, you know, I don't know, $6.99 or whatever it is on shelf. Okay. What, what is sort of the, the counter? What would the Walmart version of that look like? Right, right. So, you know, Walmart wants you to have a direct relationship with them. I want you to have a direct relationship with them. So um, there are distributors in Walmart, um, but, you know, really the move is shipping right to Walmart's DCs, maintaining being the vendor of record. Also, you have, you know, uh, visibility to your sales and all types of KPIs, right? And I don't know if you're really getting that. You can back into it, you know, how much is each store pulling out of Kahee's warehouse or something Mm -hmm. like that. But, 
you know, one of Sam Walton's original innovations is sharing data with suppliers and, mm. and those suppliers are helping drive the business. Yeah. I'm always um, amazed by that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if you look at like, he was really the first to leverage, you know, the barcode, he invented the DC network. Actually, when you look at the modern day distribution center network where inventory is showing up to one side of a warehouse and then less than 12 hours later, it's leaving, going to another direction. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, uh, you know, Sam Walton's design. And that is, um, he kind of developed sales and replenish analytics um, off of that. He started to measure inventory in his DCs and what was on, what was selling at the stores right. and how much each store. So Walmart's just, you know, f- five plus decades into uh, sales and replenishment analytics, all of which is open source and available to suppliers. Now you only have your own data, but you can right. see you can see. Yeah, that's for- worth something. Yeah, yeah, you can see forecasts. You can see so many different things: inventory on order and route, and you know mm-hmm. what's your top performing stores, and and the inventory level in the DC that feeds those stores. You have so much visibility, and um, and so I think that's a key piece. That's you know when you talk about. Um, you know, the difference in, you know, building a P&L and margin and different things like that, that matters, that that's worth a lot of money. Right. And I think that that's a huge thing that, you know, like all of my clients get a weekly reporting suite where it's, Hey, here's what happened last week. And it's in depth, granular detail. It's actionable insights. It's all these different things that a lot of people that are using, you know, distributors natural channel just can't see. So there's a value to that. But then also, it's a super clean business model, right? They pay their bills on time, like you said. They pay them in full. I've heard horror stories of some of these distributors that, you know, and so there's none of that going on. Um, And so I think that it's a very clean business model. I think a lot of people really like that. The terms are really, you know, amicable. The they pay on time. Um, there's no promo schedule. It's just an EDLC, EDLP model. Everyday low cost, everyday low price. They don't want to be running promos. They just want to be known for having the lowest price. Right. And so um, I think when you, you know, when you take all that, it really is, I think Walmart's, you know, and I think the fact that your product is on shelf at a, at a more affordable price it's also driving velocity when you ta- take their foot traffic into that. I mean, there's a monetary value on their foot traffic. So you have visibility, you have their foot traffic, you have them this clean business model where all you got to really do is ship on time and in full. You know, you got to drive category growth. You have to be, you have to perform, right? But at the end of the day, that's where I think a lot of people are starting to really see the light with Walmart's business model right. because. I mean, by the time there's all these different middlemen and natural that raise the cost of your product so much, it's just like this hyper premium. I know mm-hmm. a lot. Of, I know a lot of founders, and they all wish that their product was more accessible. Mm-hmm. Not not one of them is it, just. It, it has to be to be yeah. scalable. I mean, I think that right. goes back to the like, you know, it's a great place to start, but for us to reach the numbers that we want to reach and for us to be truly scalable and potentially exitable, mm-hmm. it, I think we need to be able to, to see if we make it in the, in the grocer with 25% market share. Right. Like, right. And, and I mean, but going back to pricing, what is their expectation? If you're five ninety nine at whole foods, They'll want, they'll want at least a 10% value gap with rest of market. And they'll want that, they'll want that 85% of the year. 
So you okay. can be running, you know, like say it's like, you know, some of these like BOGO retailers, like they understand yeah. that that's going to cut everything in half. Right. And so it's, you know, they want 10 to 15 percent value gap with the rest of the market and they want it 85 percent of the year is the okay. general rule of thumb. And going back to that velocity, let's say you're selling eight units per SKU, you know, per store per week in a Whole Foods Mm-hmm. you know, generally, you know, people used to say it goes to half in a conventional retailer and then it goes to half again in a mass retailer, but I'm not sure that that makes sense anymore. So, so, so I've heard the inverse of that, okay. but then I've also heard that. And so mm-hmm. it's, I think it differs by category. Right. Um, where I ask, because I'm so curious, I ask, you know, I'm, I'm so curious with my, my clients, you know, I'm like, hey, what are you turning in natural? What are you turning in grocery? Like, mm-hmm. how's that compared to like, you know, and I'll see some situations where I'm just like, man, I don't know how these natural retailers do it. Like, mm-hmm. the, you know what I mean? Because, you know, because we're turning higher than them. Right. And, and, and you know, price, right. Yeah. When they have less stores and mm-hmm. like, you know, like I would think it would be like, hey, if you have you know, a smaller pocket of stores, you need each item to be turning quite a bit. Right. But I'm constantly shocked when I hear some of the turn rates um, and I compare them to Walmart's actually because Walmart's foot traffic is more now that the denominator is more, right? And the units right. in the velocity calculation, the denominator is heavier because the store count is heavier. Um, but it's just one of those things. It, it I've seen it both ways. So it's hard because right. I've also seen like, you know, in certain categories, natural is just cranking and Walmart really is 25% of that. But I've also seen it the other way around, which I don't think a lot of people know about that, that kind of aspect of it because of just Walmart's foot traffic. I've seen uh, some SKUs in some categories um, right. do better in 3000 stores than they'll do in 500 yeah. or 400 Whole Foods, you know? I mean, I think part of it is obviously sort of the product and, and, you know, does it is is America ready for it? Right. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of when we talk about natural, quote unquote, we are sort of talking about the coasts and sort of, you know, these more sort of coastal type of cities that are scattered throughout. And mm-hmm. those tend to be early adopters of a lot of sort of, you know, more natural, more premium products. I do think that that is shifting literally right before our eyes in the consumer landscape, which is interesting don't really have a thesis yet, but I'm working on it. Um, But then, you know, I think also it's probably, you know, somewhat category, like you said, I mean, my guess is like an energy drink launched by a YouTuber is probably going to do a lot better in a Walmart than it is in a natural, you know, specialty or even in sort of like a more progressive conventional um, because they're just more, more people want it. It's got a bigger reach and it's an exciting thing. And, you know, so, so I can see that. And then does Walmart, um, how are they assessing growth or they, is it, is it dollars per slot? Is it, is it velocity? You know, do they look at it sort of like with a timeline sort of saying like, we're making a bet that this is going to grow right now. It's, you know, we're never going to beat the incumbent, you know, but when you add it all together, you know, they're bringing in incremental whatever and, you know, the velocity is stronger, whatever, you know, how do they value it? So they do have a way to measure incrementality. 
And that's where, you know, I think it's important for brands to, you know, having that data is super important and leveraging that to kind of protect your turf and grow within Walmart. But then Mm -hmm. also I think it's, I think it's invaluable to, you know, buy Walmart's data from, you know, syndicated data from, you know, Nielsen or IRI, Nielsen or IRI, um, because, I think that you can then protect your turf because you know what your competition is turning. You also know when you launch on shelf, like, you know, as a brand thinking about it, it's like, you know, you, you, how does Walmart measure growth? It's like, well, did this brand grow the category? They don't want to launch a brand just to swap share around, you know, mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. want. So it's like, look, I know I'm not going to turn what this core heritage brand is going to turn. I'm not trying to launch in your category and take any of their share. I'm trying to drive new customers into your category. I'm trying to grow your category. Right. And so I think that when you have the syndicated data, you can custom cluster, you know, emerging brands together and create pie charts saying, hey, like within, you know, keto, for example, right. here's here's a pie chart of units, you know, purchased on your mind. Every unit purchases a vote by the customer. And within the keto votes, like I own X percent and I'm growing more than, you know, and so I think you have to custom slice and dice data a lot of different Mm -hmm. ways. They do on the back end a lot. Um, You know, I know that every year, you know, they take the bottom 20 percent of their category and that's, you know, on the chopping block as it should be. Right. It's just it's an easy place to start. Right. So if you have that data, too, um, you can assess if you're on the bottom 20 percent. Um, from a velocity perspective. Now it is, you know, they take dollars to the bank, but units are important, right? Because again, every unit's a vote by the customer, right? And we all work for the customer, Walmart included. So they're super cognizant of that. Um, You know, they want to drive unit growth parallel to dollar growth. I mean, you have a lot of situations now where categories are up in dollars and down in units, right? Mm -hmm. When you, yeah, I'm looking again, I'm in, you know, 38 plus categories in Walmart. I, I, you know, we see the data, we look at all the, you know, syndicated data across multiple categories and that's what I'm seeing. And so Walmart is kind of one of those uh, retailers that's figured out a way to straddle both unit and dollar growth Got it. Um, because, because they're not just purely obsessed with dollars at the end right. of the day. They understand the importance of it. Obviously, look, they're publicly traded. They got margins they have to hit. They have dollars they have to grow. But, but it is an investment, right? I mean, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, like a new brand, as exciting as it might be, if it's if it's not, you know, a, a, a TikTok content creator or whatever, it's going to take a minute. There will be people who will be very excited to have it there. But I guess mm-hmm. that's the next question, right? Is like, has the Walmart consumer, and I know that they're clusters and it's very segmented, I guess, you know, my little assessment is like, because the world is omni-channel now, mm-hmm. people are shopping at Whole Foods for one thing, Walmart for another thing, Air One for another thing, Costco for something. Like yep. there isn't as much like brand loyalty to a retailer, and people are kind of used to getting what they want where they want it, and and that's just the nature of the beast. So I know it's hard to define a Walmart consumer, but you know. I think those of us that are building emerging brands and are sort of a little bit concentrated in LA and New York to some extent, mm-hmm. we worry a little about, um, you know, the rest of the world kind of not being quite ready for us and the buyer might be, and the buyer knows that we're on the upswing, but giving us 
a little bit of a runway so that there can be that consumer education and so that, you know, that right. can kind of reach them. Like, do they, do they give you a little uh, time? So the way they look at it is, you know, um, they reset a modular once a year mm-hmm. um, because it costs, you know, millions of dollars to touch a mod across 4,600 right. stores and just labor and yeah. all types. And so they prioritize that first, you know, eight to 12 weeks of data right out of the gate. Right. Um, so and so, well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that's where like having a launch plan, I mean, there's so, like you said earlier about the supply chain, like hitting the mod on time and in full is a huge piece, right? Because if you, if you short ship any of that, then mm-hmm. that, then that caps your sales, which caps your forecasts, yep. which caps your orders. And then you can't, it's such a, it's so hard to crawl out of that it. hole. Yep. And that's just right from the jump. Right. And so, you know, it's one of those things where, um, you know, it, it is, you know, out of the gate performance. It's one of those things. Now I think there are, um, buyers that are trying to be, more and more patient and educating the consumer along, doing something that's just right for the category that they know is right for the category. They mm-hmm. don't, they don't mind. They understand that it's not going to be the top performing thing, but it's a core piece. Maybe it's, you know, launching organic or sustainable packaging or this or that, right. where it's like, Hey, look, it's one of those necessary evils. I have to have it. Right. And, and I'm always going to have that option there because it says that Walmart stands for organic or sustainability. I think that there is some of that going on, but in general, I would advise brands like right out of the gate, like you didn't have everything right. dialed. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I mean, we hear the same thing about Costco too. You know, I think that's why people have been traditionally nervous. So mm-hmm. I have, so going back to, we're going to do, we're going to go a little bit in reverse order. So getting that thing right, like getting the launch, right. Mm -hmm. You know, we have so many bells and whistles with other retailers, you know, and we don't with Walmart. So Mm -hmm. it seems like it, the, the first thing is just making sure you're on time and you're, you're in your spot and you've, you've fulfilled well and you've done it. You've just done gotten on shelf period. Then, um, you know, aside from like announcing on your socials, hey, we're at Walmart, like it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot else that can be done. Right, right. In store. So what are the levers that we can pull? Gotcha. Well, that's where we should probably talk about the stores, the type of stores that brands say yes to and things, because that makes a huge difference to your point about the socials, you know? Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. I definitely want to put a pin in that because I'm just... Um, you know, some, some, you know, a 400 store test, some brands are like, oh my gosh, that's great. It's a small test. It's, uh, it's a way for us to launch in a manner in which we can handle. Um, but a lot of times some of those tests can be like nationwide, right. Or mm-hmm. they can be across 10 DCs. Like Walmart's got, you know, 4,600 stores. They have, you know, 46 DCs each feeding around a hundred stores. Right. So Sometimes that foreign store test can be across 10 DCs or more. So you're shipping vol you're shipping these inefficient volumes each and every week, you know. Yeah, you can't be doing that. And so I would rather have a 200 store test in two DCs right. and, and actually have critical mass so that you can actually say now available in Walmart, you know, and you can actually because 
even if you're in, you know, 400 stores nationwide and you even do geo target, there could be two to three Walmarts in one zip code. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think, you know, taking a step back from what you're saying is, is the, the, not that you're going to get to pick your stores, but I think the types of tests, you know, a lot of brands are like, oh my gosh, yes. You know, it's like, well, hey, are we going to have critical mass? Like I'd take half the store count if I could just ship right. to a place, a, you know, a group, a cluster of stores that I can market toward and have shipping efficiencies toward. Right. And I think that's a really big key when brands are like assessing tests and, you know, Walmart's interested and they're thinking through how they want to launch. Um, they don't necessarily get a vote, but right. they, but they, but they do get a chance to kind of go back and forth and collaborate and maybe even say that on the front end with merchants when they're calling on them, you know? Right. And, and I think that that's a good opportunity to do that because um, that allows you to market, right? If you have, yeah. you know, and so also I pick, I pick regions that to your point earlier about like middle America and things like that, I want to be in Walmarts. Like if I'm an emerging brand, I want to be in Walmarts where- You're already popular. Well, not yeah. even not even that, but also- People, families that have high health, high household incomes don't have their nose up at shopping at Walmart. Right. Someone in Dallas, Texas, Plano, Texas, that, you know, the average, their their household income is 200 grand a year. They're shopping at Walmart, Atlanta. They're shopping at Walmart. You look at the Southeast, people that make good money in Alabama, they still shop at Walmart. Yep. Right. So you want to have, you want to be, you don't want to be in Walmart on the West Coast if your shopper is not shopping in Walmart. They're shopping Mm -hmm. at uh, the stiff natural channel competition on the West coast or the East coast, like these coastal cities. Right. Interesting. It's almost not exactly where you're popular because right. right, Your, your ear one consumer is probably not like moseying. I mean, although I I think that, like I said before, I think there's a little bleeding going on among the channels, but there's still a pretty, you know, there is a, you know, I think you're right. I think that there, I I mean, I guess it's a nose up thing, but I think it's also just like, that's not where they shop. Right. That's true. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's like, look, the Dakotas, like North and South Dakota, Montana, um, Mm -hmm. where there's a, there's only one Walmart, like those stores crank. Right. And so, you know, it's like, I would rather have clusters in those regions in, mm. you know, Texas, Florida, like there's areas where, you know, Walmart, you just crank and like everyone else can have the West coast or this or that. As mm-hmm. long as I have some critical mass to drive marketing and, and stuff like that tour, where if I say now available at Walmart, I'm, I'm actually at the nearest Walmart. Yeah. I think that's, that's how you straddle that, you know, that small store count test, because right. if you're, if you're in, you know, four or 500 stores nationwide, you can't market to it. You don't have shipping mm-hmm. efficiencies. And it's just one of those things you have to launch on shelf and to your point, just hope for the best. Right. Right. Um, and so that's where I think you can kind of in the front end kind of, you know, you, like I said, you don't get a, a pick, but you, you can try to persuade the buyer maybe to be in some of those modulars um, right. or just to have just one state, right. Like Texas, has 600 Walmarts. Florida's got 500 Walmarts, right? Like right. I'd, rather, I'd rather just have one state, one DC with a hundred store, you know, something like that versus some nationwide test and all the high income stores, right? Mm-hmm. Because again, the high income stores, um, that yeah. shopper might be shopping at because natural channels, more fierce competition in those markets like the West yep. Coast. 
that it might not it might not make a difference even though you're like oh I'm a West Coast brand it's like actually you'd be surprised yeah. how well you can sell in some of these other markets that's great that is a fun insight um, so and then you know I just want to wrap up the sort of marketing levers like mm-hmm. I've read your posts fetch Ibotta like it they still kind of rule the rule the day in terms of marketing levers you can pull there. Right. So I think, you know, also Walmart Connect has, you know, Walmart has a whole marketing arm and that's plugged into its ecosystem of services and apps and different things that you can participate with there. They drive Lyft. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, you know, with Fetch and I bought, I've put money with both, you know, and Fetch pulls through the, those campaigns much quicker than I bought it does. And so what I like about what I like about Fetch and what I like about models, like Ibotta kind of invented the model. Fetch just does it, gamified it. They just do it a little right. better. They, like, a mar- marketing can be a little woo-woo to me, right? Like, mm-hmm. if someone's like, hey, just, you know, I, I just, you you throw all this money into a hole in hopes for, like, relevancy and this right. and that. And sometimes you just can't measure lift. And I'm someone that just likes to measure lift, like, objectively, like, just basic math. Did this drive lift or not? And mm-hmm. so with Fetch... And I bought a every incremental unit they're moving through their platform is calculated and you pay for it as you go, right? And so I think that that there's a it's just really simple. It's the first time the only the only variable is the timeline it takes to move through that volume. And right. so I, I really like the fact that there's a marketing tool out there that allows for that. It trans- is clean. <laughs> yeah, it's transparency and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm a little yeah. spoiled. Like working with Walmart, like there's a lot of marketing I wouldn't suggest a lot of people do. And right. so, yeah, I would say take all that money and invest it into having a lower cost to the retailer and that'll give you a lower cost on shelf. Mm-hmm. That's way better marketing. Like it might just because I'm a Walmart focused guy, right? No. But, <laughs> but, but, but it's just one of those things where I do think the fetch thing is cool because the transparency is there. You can see how many units they're moving through their platform. You can see all this different stuff and you, every unit is verified. It's incremental. It's moved through the platform. Right. And I just, I like that from a transparency perspective. I have a hard time talking my clients into uh, levers outside of that other right. than just driving into lower cost. No, I get it. I get it. It's interesting because someone the other day was talking about, you know, Costco and mm-hmm. they were saying that, um, you know, demos at Costco don't just service Costco. They're like, they are a marketing tactic mm-hmm. for, for the whole brand. Right. And, mm-hmm. and it's interesting cause it's almost like Walmart, if you can do it right. And this is a caveat cause I don't know, jury's still out, but like, if you can do it right, just being on the shelf there is in of itself, its own marketing tactic. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, cause it got so many eyeballs. Yep. They're just, it's just sheer eyeballs. Right. Um, so going back to the pitch. So obviously it is not recommended to do this without a broker <laughs> who understands and who has experience. Um, that said, you know, brands do, you know, their own sort of personalization and, you know, you want to tell the buyer, like everything you've said, we think we can drive growth. We think that we can be incremental. We think that there is a product Walmart fit or a brand Walmart fit. We have the infrastructure to, to be able to supply well. 
you know, we think that a test in these regions works well for X, Y, Z. What else do you think there re- gets them really excited when they see a deck come through or they meet a brand? I think, you know, I've seen really large D2C businesses, you know, eight-figure D2C businesses, um, you know, excite them because those brands have di- a direct connection with our audience. And then mm-hmm. and then if Walmart can have a value gap on that, I think that I've seen some big launches with some D2C brands lately. Um, also, you know, not really, uh, you know, we, we talked like an influencer with an energy drink earlier, but I think there's influencers like you look at like Mr. Beast, right? Where mm-hmm. he's got some staying power. I was telling you the same thing. Like you've been doing this a while. You have your next, you know, year Me and Mr. booked Beast out. are often compared. <laughs> <in the same. laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, look, uh, you guys, you guys have all these views, grand. you have all yeah. these eyeballs, you have all this you have this audience and you're not like a flash in the pan influencer that's just going to be, right. you know, uh, in and out of, of the sphere and, you know, eight months or two year, you know, it's like you have this staying power. Right. And so I think that Walmart's, you know, partnering with influencers that have staying power, mm-hmm. um, also, you know, that are really good at educating consumers as well. Right. Um, so if you look at a lot of what the influencers are launching, they're really good at educating consumers. They're really good at driving, you know, people into their store to to you know grow their category and purchase products on their shelf. And I think um, that's what I'm seeing. You know, Walmart lean into in terms of those two things. But also, it's it's the data, right? It's it's mm-hmm. the it's the hey, I'm driving category growth, and you're missing out on this category growth. And here's an objective data backstory: is that I'm driving X amount of units via D to C via natural, via grocery, club, whatever it is, and we're growing the category like this. I have, you know, and it's just like, if there's nothing even close to your your brand or your product, and Walmart's missing out on that growth, right? And I right. think that's, that's something they want to know about as well. I mean, their objective, their feelings aren't hurt. You're not calling... You right. know their baby ugly. They're they're trying to grow their category, and right. so and so that's what I think it's all about is these objective data backed stories. And so and I guess then that that leads me to, you know, with there are these sort of you know content creators and whatnot. And I don't know if you've launched any of them, but like they don't have a ton of data Mm-mm. yet. So for the brands who are you know, maybe launching new product lines or the brands that are launching, you know, just new, new things, but that feel like a better fit for Walmart. Right. So like, Mm -hmm. you know, in our case, right. Candidly, like, I don't think the fresh is necessarily the best fit at the moment, but the shelf stable, you know, when it comes could be. Mm -hmm. So how do you kind of get around the data, the dearth of, data if you are considering them, right? Because I know a few brands like me where like they they kind of are starting to think like maybe this is my product for natural, but maybe this is my product, you know, when it comes to like a Walmart. Right, right. I think, well, it's it's these brands and like it's your products, the subcategories they represent are those subcategories driving category growth you know, right. in, in natural. I think that's a big piece. It doesn't necessarily have to be. I've seen yeah. brands come into Walmart mm-hmm. and say, hey, 
brands that accomplish, you know, no palm oil, no this, no that, you know, and here's, mm-hmm. here's the, here's the definition of clean label. And here are all these products in market that you don't have driving all this growth. I have these same products at this, you know, and I think that it's mm-hmm. the, I've seen brands sell on just the fact that the qualities that are products or brand represents are driving you know, this subcategory right. growth. That's very helpful. Are creating a, su- yeah, it's it's creating subcategories. When I pull, you know, any category, I custom cluster each category into either health attributes or price points, you know, like mm-hmm. to take something highly fragmented like pasta sauce or wine or whatever. Um, right. You can say like in pasta sauce, for example, you know, zero to $2 is good. Two to four is better. Four and above is best, Right. And you could break, you could look at, you can analyze data and say, okay, um, you know, good is this percent of your category and this is, that's growth year over year and here's mm-hmm. better. And oh my gosh, look, premium is driving all this growth. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's on a smaller base, but look at like, it's eclipsing the growth in units and dollars of, you know, better. Wow. Right. People are trading right from, you know, right. good to best. And so that could be something that like, there's all these different mm-hmm. things. And so, you know, you'd mentioned, you know, your line of fresh sauces, like those are premium. Those are, you know, is premium right. driving growth, you know? And I think mm-hmm. that there's, a, there's just so many ways to look at categories and to, right. and I don't, I'm not a fan of people say like spinning the data. It's like, no, no, this is objective data. And here's right. the story, but I do feel the need to custom cluster right. all, you know, brands, product attributes, different things like that into subcategories of their own and then measure them against each other. Listen, that's, I mean, like every federal government in the world looks at data differently. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. you're not the, you know, it's a tool and like any tool, you can use it in different ways. My last question, um, because this has been incredibly helpful. It's like Walmart 101. Um, Has there been any surprises, I guess, both ways, obviously no, no names that you need to mention, but anything that you thought would work that didn't work mm-hmm. and looking back, why do you think that was? And anything that you were like, I don't know if this is going to really, but then something, it just like took off. And, and why do you think that was? Okay. I'll start with the latter. And that is, I have been absolutely shocked at the innovation I didn't think would work that's being launched in grocery under Walmart's private label. Yeah. Um, their, their private label sourcing people are they're you know, if you're, if you're a brand, you get, you know, 25 minutes a year and that's your shot. Those are your line reviews and mm-hmm. you know, thank you. Goodbye. With, <laughs> with private label, they have teams of people. They have product development people that are obsessed with product. They have mm-hmm. sourcing people that are obsessed with costs and they collaborate on formulations and stuff. And we've launched some pretty aggressive stuff in frozen and grocery and snacks. And, and, um, I, you know, it's, it's edgy. We're challenging brands because if, you know, Walmart has maybe a lot of heritage brands in a category that aren't innovating. And there's, right. really, there's really no control brand they can launch as like a category disruptor. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll do it themselves. Right. And they, they have a line around the block of manufacturers that want to work with them that can, hit, sure. that can hit any spec, right? And so mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, the aggressive things that we've launched um, in private label that I didn't think would work that 
<laughs> just did work. And, you know, Walmart's got a lot of brand loyalty to that private label because they've been able to innovate. It's not right. necessarily Trader Joe's, you know, private label where it's right. just so cutting edge and ahead of the curve. Well, but, they just copy all of the cool kids. <laughs> well, they, they just, they're, they're notorious for it. Yeah. Right. Right. And so, um, but yeah, Walmart, you know, and that's one thing where it's like, Hey, look, I thought private label was more about in Walmart, you know, national mm-hmm. brand equivalents, right. The you know, yep. yeah, here's a national brand equivalent at 80% of the price of the brand, you know? done yeah. just check a basic box the packaging's bland but like if you look over like even over in like sporting goods at ozark trail walmart's private label mm-hmm. i mean they are innovating and driving all this category growth and it's really really cool what walmart's doing from a private label perspective i didn't see that coming i still <laughs> sometimes find myself in situations where we're knee deep in these really intense innovative ahead of the curve uh, product collaborations and we're talking about doing a Walmart private label. And um, I just think it's right for the customer, but I, I do kind of have this, you know, second guessing doubt, you know, right. um, and they launch and they kill it and it's just awesome. And, um, you know, and, yeah, yeah. And then on the flip of that, and I, I learned a lot of, you know, I do a lot. I do, I most of I say most, about half of my desk is private label. So mm, interesting. Again, I like working with vertically integrated manufacturers. I like being able to adjust specs, packaging, this, that, mm-hmm. collaboration on formulations. I like all that. And so on the flip of that, uh, things that we thought were sure things um, mm-hmm. just flop. Like, uh, here's the value gap, here's this, where people were actually loyal to the brands mm-hmm. despite the value gap. Um, did not see that coming, right? The math would say like, hey, this is, you know, right. our whole goal is like, hey, let's drop the opening price point. So you wait for a brand or a product, you know, to kind of stagnate and flatten in year over year growth. And then what you want to do is launch, you know, private label innovation uh, or a control brand or something that that drops the opening price point to something more more affordable. And that reinjects units back into the category and category growth that offers new accessibility to the category. And so that playbook is like tried and true, but there's been several times where people are just so loyal to the brand that that, that that hasn't worked. And that just kind of defied Mm. my logic several times. And and you want to be that brand, right? Right. I want to be that brand. Yeah. 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 Um, That's really cool. It's funny because I like, I know we have to go, but we had a, um, I hosted like a retailer sort of round table thing on zoom with like 200 founders and operators. And I interviewed like three buyers and I said something about the future. And like one of the buyers was like, basically the future's private label. And I was like, that's exactly what every one of the 200 people on the zoom want to hear. Like Mm -hmm. you should just pack it up folks. Because I mean, it was kind of funny, but also not that funny. So anyway, um, there's still a lot of opportunity for brands. Absolutely. Uh, yes. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And Amazing. like, like you said, innovation is good business and, yep. and Walmart's very, you know, they love brands as well. They're trying to grow yeah. their category objectively. They don't care how they get it done. They just want to get it done. And so right. that's where I think, you know, they're a great partner from that, that standpoint. Yep. You know, it, it always comes back to like when an institution knows who they are and, and, and everything ladders up to who they are. It kind of doesn't matter who they are as long as it's consistent. Mm -hmm. 
I find that it's like when institutions are sending mixed signals or they're, they're trying to be like, da, 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 but they're really not like da, 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 or, you know, Mm -hmm. it's almost the same as a brand, right? Like Mm -hmm. you don't, not everyone has to love you. Um, but when you stay consistent to your brand, you build this depth. Um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting. All right. Well, Grant, this has been so, so helpful. And, it's funny because I had my IP lawyer, Amanda, on the show a couple of years ago, and I left the, the podcast recording being like, maybe I should be an IP lawyer. <laughs> like I was so, she was so excited about her job. And then I was so excited about her job that I was like, maybe I'm in the wrong career. Maybe <laughs> I should be an IP lawyer. I actually have this feeling like I, I would... I would like to be a Walmart broker. This sounds like amazing. So come on, I'll take you clearly, on. Yeah, exactly. I would just, you know, maybe have to move to Arkansas. But no, I don't know no, you do it. You could do it remote. You could probably figure out a way to straddle well, it. I think yeah. look, I think like I wake up every day. I'm so fulfilled. Like You're Walmart super psyched. Yeah, yeah. Walmart's footprint, forty six hundred stores, like it's everyone, you know, ninety percent of people shop at Walmart. It's you know, yeah. It's less than 10 miles from like 75% plus of the U.S. population, you know, and they, they have a piece of everyone's basket via household chemicals. Did you chemicals say 90% or, of mm-hmm. Americans shop at Walmart? For something, right? Like paper right. towels, household chemicals, milk, like they have a right. piece of most people's basket, right? And that's where, you know, we talked about earlier, just, I think they're also con. People are cross shopping. To your point, right. they're going into the store. They're they're buying the paper towels, but they're also no- noticing how amazing these mm-hmm. assort these assortments are, and the prices of these. They have all the brands that the natural channel has, plus other brands, and they have them all at this value gap with the rest of the market. And that's yep. where they're just converting more and more shares. So, I mean, I think yeah. it's it's just one of those things where, yeah, I'm just I'm super stoked to be doing what I'm doing. Yeah. I mean, and it is clear and I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Kind of last minute notice, but I've been like, I just wanted to talk about Walmart. Um, So thank you for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And Liam, as always, thank you for um, engineering the show again, kind of last minute notice. So appreciate you both. Um, listeners, uh, this will be playing after the summer break. So we're back. Woohoo. And I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.